stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders, past and present, as well as recognise that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. Hey, I'm Danny Stewart and you're listening to All the Best on FBI 94.5. Next month marks five years since marriage equality was legalised in Australia. This week on All the Best, we're sharing some stories of the beautiful queer weddings that have taken place since. We're taking a moment to celebrate these love stories and also to acknowledge how vital these rights are. Recently, the 2022 World Cup has brought attention to the persecution of the LGBTQIA community in Qatar. Qatar is one of the many places in the world where homosexuality remains illegal and punishable by death penalty. Australian soccer player Josh Cavallo recently spoke out about Qatar's shocking treatment of the queer community and why the freedom to express sexuality is so important. As a professional athlete, we are taught showing up is crucial to success. Every training, every game, it's ingrained. Show up for your coach, teammates, fans, give everything. Truthfully, I was holding back, hiding out, avoiding difficult conversations, isolating myself off the pitch, living silently in the closet on the pitch, unable to live openly. I thought, how can I be a champion while hiding? I was ready to be that person I always wanted to be, to show up. That's the gift I gave myself, my team, my loved ones. I came out on October 27, 2021. If you're a coach, a team owner, employer, teacher, parent, friend, think of the profound benefits in creating open, accepting, safe environments where everyone emerges from the shadows brighter. The support I have received is beyond, but the work is still needs to be done is staggering. For many, standing up and living honestly puts them in harm's way. It's dangerous, even deadly. We're far from true equality when 69 countries still criminalize LGBTQ people brushes these issues off, not realizing their son, daughter, or teammate might be LGBTQ. That's a teacher they love is transgender, athletes they cheer for are bisexual or non-binary. That's why we must stand up, speak up like all of you, showing up for all those who can't. That's my promise to this vital community I love and am proud to call home. I'm here. I promise to be there for the gay athletes showing up on their first day of football tryouts, to speak up 
for transgender athletes showing up at national and international competitions, like the Olympic trials, not knowing if they're able to compete by the very federations meant to support, protect, and champion athletes, just like the Olympic Charter states. I vow to stand up for the LGBTQ athletes and the fans at the World Cup in Qatar, who can't live openly, authentically. Qatar, FIFA, the world is watching. Do you see us? Hopefully the heat that Qatar is facing will result in change for their LGBT plus community, as well as creating change elsewhere. As players around the world call for the decriminalization of queer relationships, these stories remind us how important it is to be able to love regardless of gender and sex. Up first, Salvin tells the story of how his Fiji-born conservative Indian family reacted to his gay wedding. It was a cold Wednesday night in the winter of 2018 when Scott and I sat having a beer at a pub outside Town Hall Station, a BB, our favorite. We dated for about six months, but talked online for more than a year before that night. He is now my lawfully married husband. In that pub, I was lying to him, saying I did not expect any extravagant fanfare if I was ever asked to marry someone. The way I had actually imagined it was being caught by surprise in some exotic location overseas where he would go down on one knee at the top of a mountain and bring out a Louis Vuitton bag <laughs> with personalized engraving and inside the bag a Medusa print Versace shirt. <laughs> All that to trick me and blow my mind away followed by a proposal ring. In the background would be a live performance by about 50 or so dancers to a romantic Bollywood number that I had grown up listening to. <laughs> Scott and I both knew we loved each other and in that pub, among all that blokey background cheering for some rugby match that was being played live on a huge screen, which both of us paid no attention to, Scott asked me to marry him. <laughs> in a pub without fanfare, <laughs> because he was the kind of person who got the hint and didn't waste time making up his mind. I said yes immediately, also hoping not to catch the attention of all that beefcake who were watching a bunch of men on screen. <laughs> I called Scott later that night, once the alcohol wore off, and the next day just to make sure. We moved in, logged in the reception venue, decided the guest list, the invitation cards went out, we met the priest and booked in our Hindu wedding. Everything was running as planned, except that I hadn't told my parents who live in Fiji that I was getting married. Things for them were already not easy as my brother had eloped with a girl and then brought her home to live with my parents. It was the biggest shame to my Fiji-born, Indian background, conservative, 
brown, strict parents who live their lives according to societal norms. To add to the dread, <laughs> to add to the dread, the Prime Minister of Fiji made a public statement at a groundbreaking ceremony that same-sex marriages would never happen in Fiji. Among all this was the news of my wedding, like a thermonuclear bomb seconds before impact. Sometime in March, after much consultation with friends, I sent my parents a message on Viber, telling them both I was getting married in August. There was no reply. Two days after, I called mum like I did most days, at 5.45 a.m., leaving for yoga. It was 7.45 in Fiji. How are you? I asked. I'm good, just making rotis and curry for everyone's lunch. There was a pause. Two long seconds. Overseas calls to Fiji are quick and very loud because they can be expensive or crackling on free apps. Did you get my message? I asked. Yes, we did. I'll talk to you later. My roti is burning. The line went dead. That evening, my dad sent me a message saying I should stop all this, that no one would be happy, and that the prime minister did not accept this either. My inner Kali, the goddess of death and doomsday, had been awakened and she wasn't going to rest until her performance was over. <laughs> so I sent my father a reply message. 1,400 words altogether. In all the messages I sent to him, which I got one sentence or one word replies to, usually just, okay. I must have written enough for a master's thesis. Between these messages, there was a respectful silence on the gender and sexuality topic that we had grown to almost accept. We sort of talked about it and sort of didn't. Most times, me trying to, and either the topic was changed or my mom would tell me her dal or her curry is burning. A few months passed, and it felt like my parents had started to pretend the wedding wasn't happening at all. Then one morning, with a calm and clear mind, I sent them both the wedding invitation and said, here are the details. If you guys came, I'd be the happiest, and if you didn't, I'd still love you the same. Dad replied, okay, we'll tell you tomorrow. <laughs> I became a bit panicky. What if they came and my mom fulfilled her role of being an overdramatic mother to a gay son and beat her chest, crying and cursed the priest for seven rebirths? There is no pressure, I quickly added in my message to them. <laughs> the next morning, after yoga and meditation at the studio, while on my way to the station along Redfern Street, I switched my phone back on. As it started to come back to life, the notifications began to show up. The first one was a missed call from my friend Kailesh in Brisbane, who calls me every morning at 6 a.m. The second was a Viber message from my father. It read, Mom and I had a talk and we dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I quickly tapped on the message. I could hear my heartbeat. All my focus was on my phone. Any moment now and I could get hit by a person or a vehicle, but I couldn't care at that time. My phone screen went bright white for a second. Then the Viber app started to load. 
Seconds passed. I looked up to find myself at the red light crossing on Regent Street, still loading. I crossed the road as fast as I could, long strides and a slight jump in my walk, still loading. Finally, as I waited to cross the next set of lights in front of Redfern Police Station, the message appeared on my phone. I took a second and read, Mom and I talked and we will come to the wedding. Please send us the paperwork to lodge our visa. I read it again. My, vis my vision became blurry and I looked up at the sky. The tears rolled down. While crossing the road this time, I didn't make eye contact with a man selling magazines who always says, good morning to you. I quickly went down the escalators to platform 12 and got on my train to Rockdale. I cried looking out the window so no one could see my tears. The entire trip was full of images of my childhood growing up in Fiji. By midday, we extended invitations to some of my cousins, aunts and uncles. Come nightfall, our guest list had increased from 56 to 106. <laughs> because my parents had opened the door to the entire clan. People were coming from all over. I had a full-on wedding, three days of rituals and events from Ahaldi, Sangeet, and Mehendi, and delicious piesum by the amazing Rohan on Thursday night. A garden-themed Hindu ceremony on Friday, where my mom wore my favorite peach, yellow, and purple silk sari I gifted her once, and dad wore a matching pink shirt. One of the guests told me later that my mom gra grabbed Scott by the arm and said, come take a photo with me. On Saturday evening, a Western wedding reception with alcohol literally flowing. <laughs> the fabulous Radha Labia as our MC, who cried when my dad delivered his speech. Wedding drama and my cousins dancing till they dropped, cleaning the dance floor with their suits. The next morning, all my family that traveled from all over sat everywhere in the living room. The sofa, the floor, the coffee tables, they sat on everything. All shades of color in that room with, with Scott and I at the far ends of the spectrum. My dad's older sister followed me into the kitchen. She held my arm and said softly, Scott is a really nice guy. I'm so happy for you. Then she reached up and placed both her hands on my head. All my blessings with you and Scott. I walked back into the living room, finding my way around the maze of people and sat down. My mom's brother said in his loud voice, Scott, if Selvin ever makes your life hard for you, give us a call and we'll fix him up. <laughs> you are now our son and we will look after you. And that is how my family reacted to my wedding. That story was written and read by Salvin Kumar. Salvin originally read this story at Queer Stories, a national LGBTQI storytelling project curated by Maeve Marsden. Queer Stories isn't just an event, it's also a podcast and a book. You can find out more at mavemarsden.com slash queer stories and subscribe to the Queer Stories podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to All the Best, on FBI 94.5. I'm Danny Stewart. 
All the Best is a great place to learn the art of audio storytelling. Never made a story before? No problem. No experience is required. If you'd like to make a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com. Up next, wedding photographer Hank Paul speaks to queer couples about their love stories. Love. It's priceless. Yet, as humans often do with priceless things, we've managed to put a value on what it costs to celebrate love. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, the global wedding industry was valued at over $300 billion. And this is set to surpass $400 billion by 2030. To give you a sense of how much that is, it's almost as big as the global coffee market. Of course, for the longest time, the wedding industry, by its very legal definition, excluded a whole group of people. The queer community. My queer community. Beginning in the Netherlands in 2001, 30 countries around the world and counting have legally recognised marriage equality at a national level. I've been a wedding photographer for the last 10 years, and in that time I have personally experienced the impact that marriage equality has had, not only on my business, but as a queer person and a member of the queer community. And I want to ask why. Why is it important for LGBTQ plus people to be given the same rights and opportunities to marry? Go ahead. Okay, sure. Um, I am Kirsten Palladino. My pronouns are she, they, and I am co-founder and editorial director of Equally Wed magazine. And I am Maria Palladino. My pronouns are she, they, and I am a co-founder and creative director of Equally Wed. In 2009, Kirsten and Maria Palladino founded Equally Wed, an inclusive wedding magazine, book, and education resource for LGBTQ couples and wedding professionals. These days, they spend their entire professional lives devoted to serving queer couples who are planning their wedding. When I sat down to interview them, I wanted to hear about their early days and how they became a couple. They met at a time when the idea of marriage equality wasn't even on the radar for most people. Instead, everyone was shaking it like a Polaroid picture, thanks to Outkast's number one song, Hey Ya. Let's go back to 2003. Here's Kirsten. We both were living in Atlanta at the time, and neither of us had been living in Atlanta for a long time. We were both part of the going out nightclub scene. We were in our earlier early 20s. And I think it's really important to recognize for the LGBTQ plus community that's where we find our people um, because there are queer clubs and there are um, and, and clubs specifically dedicated just to, um, you know, female identified people for, for certain nights, etc. So um, I know it sounds crazy I'm, to say now as we've gotten older. That's Kirsten's wife, Maria, chiming in. Yeah, we had, you know, there was the ladies nights at the, the country two stepping bar on a Thursday night. Then there was the one more like pop. RB kind of club on Friday nights where a lot of the women went to or however anybody was identifying and then Saturday kind of a mix at another club bar or, or the and so there were yeah. oftentimes that we were you know hanging out with friends and getting together and going to those safe spaces um, where where you were finding your friends but you were also finding potentially people you were dating as well mm -hmm. and so it was in this queer clubbing scene that Kirsten and Maria met for the first time the summer of 2003 I was just dating somebody really casually and I saw Maria at 
the two-stepping country western bar on ladies night and i um i spotted maria because maria was part of there was someone in maria's circle who was dating someone in my friends friendship circle and i thought oh my gosh she's so hot she must have somebody from out of state like she couldn't possibly be single and maria thought that i was whoever i was you know sort of dating was someone i'd been in a serious relationship with for years so we both had misconceptions about the other the weeks and the months pass by and kirsten and maria continue to bump into each other at the clubs and through their mixed social circles one night kirsten finally worked up the courage to say something uh we were out at the same club one night and i went up to maria's friend and said is maria dating anyone and her friend lied to me and said no but behind my head maria was pointing to um to me uh, and mouthing to her friend you're talking to kirsten so she was excited to see me talking you know um uh, to her friend but anyway um so yeah her friend totally told me a lie maria was dating uh, and talking to several women not really yeah just yeah. like <laughs> and, and so but i would never have asked her out if i had known that there was competition i'm not very competitive so i asked her out and uh and then we started dating. A month later, Maria asked me to be her girlfriend. And we've been together for almost 18 years yeah. now. Or definitely 18 years. 18 years plus. Yeah. Eventually, Kirsten and Maria got married. And as I said, they've been together for 18 years plus. That is a long time. And that's what marriage is about. It's love and commitment. Loving someone so much that you want to spend the rest of your life with them. But marriage is more than just that beautiful, emotive idea of commitment. It's a genuine union of two people, and it affords them certain rights and benefits in society. So my name is Tara. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm a winning publisher, I guess, at the end of the day. I spoke with Tara Baker, who, along with her fiancé, Alia, founded the world's first lesbian wedding magazine, Dancing With Her. Before marriage equality was recognised in Australia, Tara and Alia experienced firsthand just how hard it was to navigate a personal crisis without the legal recognition of being partners in life. A few years ago, they went on a holiday together to Rottnest Island, which is off the coast of Western Australia. This is like a little island. There aren't any cars or anything like that on the island. You ride push bikes everywhere. Inevitably, the conversation about marriage came up. We'd been riding around watching the sunset. We'd had a beautiful picnic on the beach where we decided that we wanted to elope and we wanted to get married and we started dreaming about what that would look like. And we were there until quite late. It was quite dark and we were riding back to where we were staying for the night. And as we were riding back, Alia came around a, a corner and instead of going around the corner, Alia went um, over a ledge. So she fell about two metres headfirst into concrete. I couldn't tell you how long any of this happened. It's really like a big blur. Um, but it, I did. I was yelling for help and I could hear somebody in the background. I could hear a group of people. Um, and so I think I got their attention eventually. And they came over. Thankfully, they knew where the nurse on the island lived. So they went around there, knocked on her door, woke her up, um, and she came around in the ambulance. Alia needed to be sedated and airlifted off the island in the middle of the night. But Tara wasn't allowed to go with her. Instead, she would have to wait until the next morning and catch the first boat back. 
I had called the hospital to ask how she was going and they said, I can't tell you anything because you're not family. And they said, but I'm on all the paperwork. I've just written myself down. Like we had literally probably two hours before had a conversation with each other and said that we wanted to get married um, and that we were going to elope. Alia went into brain surgery for five hours. Meanwhile, Tara eventually was able to make it to the hospital. But when she arrived, she was met with some resistance. When I told them who I was, that I was Alia's partner, it was usually met with a lot of confusion. Um, For the most part, doctors were very dismissive of our relationship. I was consistently called her sister all the time. I was refused information because I wasn't family, even though, you know, in our eyes we were family. She was my partner. The whole time, all I had in my head was that if we were a heterosexual couple, I really thought that that would have been a different experience. I think that I would have been taken seriously and eventually her family flew over so that we were all there. But, you know, there were some really tough conversations that needed to happen during that week. We had to have conversations about when the time to turn off life support would come because there was a chance that, you know, she wasn't going to pull through any of this. They couldn't tell us what was going to be the outcome. We had to have conversations around people with these types of injuries often wake up and not remember periods of their life. And so there was a chance that she would wake up and not know who I was. Um, And so we had to have conversations around what that would look like, um, you know, what her care after the injury would look like as well. And just during that period, I think I felt like I wasn't really a part of those conversations. Like I didn't have a valid opinion, even though, you know, we were in a committed relationship. We, We just wanted, you know, I had that conversation about getting married. And so to me in that moment, this was like my life, like what was happening. But I think from the outside, it was, you know, people not taking me seriously or anything like that. It was during that week that I was like, if we were married, this would be a different thing. And I knew that it wasn't legal and that was a whole different thing. But I was like, this is something that we should work towards. A week later, defying all expectations, Alia was able to come out of her coma safely. And the first thing that she did was ask about Tara. She woke up and asked where I was immediately, which was like a sigh of relief. Alia now lives with a traumatic brain injury, an invisible disability. There are things that Alia can and can't do. You know, after the injury, it's probably taken probably, oh gosh, more than five years to get back to her being in a place where she could even work. It's been a really long journey, but she's you know, we're incredibly lucky with where she's at. Um, For the most part, most people wouldn't have any idea that, you know, that's a part of our story. Yeah, she's just got a really cool scar on the side of her head that's half of her head (laughs) with hundreds of uh, staple marks. (laughs) Alia and Tara are parents now and their business is going from strength to strength. She's lucky and she's an incredible parent now and has a fulfilled life. So we're very, very, very lucky. Since launching Dancing With Her, Tara and Alia have also launched a sibling publication, Dancing With Them, which celebrates all queer weddings and love stories. Just like Kirsten and Maria's Equally Wed, Tara and Alia's publications have been pivotal in the evolution of the wedding industry and the visibility of LGBTQ weddings in society. I can't understate just how important this visibility has been for the acceptance of queer love and marriage equality amongst the general public. That story was produced by Hank Paul and is an excerpt from their new podcast, First Look. 
you can listen to the whole series at firstlookpodcast.com. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with Sin and 3 Triple R on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Brunarong lands and 8 Triple C on Arunda and Warramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun. Our production manager is Phoebe Adler-Ryan. Timothy Muin is our social media producer, Lydia Yosefova is our community coordinator, and Madura Prakash is our trainee. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we're made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening.